Welcome, welcome. You know what it is. It's your boy, Jay Will the Sage, Mr. Cool Fresh. Your favorite Zaddy, Lord Jalen Willard. And on this episode of Everything Cool, we're in a different location this time. Not in a coffee shop, but in, I don't want to, I don't know if we should say the name of this place. Undisclosed location. Undisclosed location. Undisclosed location. You know, um... We have a returning guest host. He missed the last part, but he is here to join us right now. Introduce yourself, bro. Good day, everyone. This is Buford, the Dawn. The Dawn. Oh, yeah, I know I've been missed uh, for these parts, but two parts, but I'm back now. So. No, you was in the last one. Last? No, I said the last two parts I missed, I think. But no, the last the, the one before that is when we went to Atlanta. Oh, yeah. All right, oh, so he was missing the last one, <laughs> you know. And today we have a very special guest on the show. Please introduce yourself, sir. Uh, how you guys doing out there in the media and radio world? Uh, my name's Ramon Ramsey, a native Bahamian uh, who was read in the United States. Uh, and I'm back home now. And I guess in just a few seconds, you will dig, dig deeper into my story. All right. OK, OK, OK. So the, usually we have a Bahamian word, phrase, or saying of the day. And normally we like to give it to our hosts that come up, you know, give us the Bahamian word, phrase, or saying of the day. You got anything in the talk? No? You know what? If I had to say one, I'll have to dig all the way back. So this okay. one may be before you guys' this time, right? All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I may have to say something like Mother Adam or Mother Freeze. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you have the Bahamian word phrase slash saying of the day is mother freeze. Now, what does mother freeze mean? Now, that I never got, right, what the meaning was. But I take it to be that, you know, a mother freeze, like that's something like, you know, uh, man, when someone says something, it's like, well, mother freeze, for real? You know, yeah. or oh, mother Adel, like, you know, something that's mother unbelievable. <laughs> but don't quote me on that. So if there's anyone out there <laughs> that can come up with a better definition, then please feel free to give it to us, all right? Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. So, I mean, I think now we use mother sick, but you know, it's saying it's saying thing, same um, concept and everything like that. So, um, so where do we begin, Mr. Ramsey? I met him through one of our last guests on Living Your Best Life. Um, my best friend Tanya Adelie, she introduced me to Mr. Ramsey, and he has a very interesting backstory. Um, also. He's currently writing a book based on, is it an autobiography? Yes. You can consider it an autobiography, but also self, self-help. Okay, self-help, self-help book. Yeah. And yeah. it's called Check It Pass But God. Check It Pass But God. All right. Yeah. So, obviously, he said Check It Pass. Why, why you chose that title? Well, I would- you know, most people, I feel, most people run away from some of the mistakes that they make. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I don't believe that in life we really incur many failures. I believe there's something called fail, failing forward or falling forward. Mm-hmm. And I take whatever it is from my past and I find out how can I use it in the future to help somebody else or to be better. You know, there's a quote that I ascribe to that says, the wise man learned from his mistakes. That's me. Mm-hmm. The even wiser man learned from the wise man mistakes. So my thing is to impart to others uh, whatever it is from my failure or my checkered past so that they can become even wiser men. Okay, okay, All okay. Right. So... We have a routine on this show, like, you know, interviewing, well, this is a Bahamian show, and we interview Bahamians. Some may not live in the Bahamas, like, you know, one of our last guests, 
Brandon, who we, you know, he lives now in Atlanta. Okay. But you're a behemoth that was from here, lived in the U.S., and now yes. returned. So give us a little bit of backstory from, like, you know, um, you being, you were born in the Bahamas? Yeah, born in the Bahamas. Okay, so get, take us from your birth into, you know, you transitioning over to the U.S. Okay, awesome. So I'm a native Bahamian. I was uh, born in Nassau, uh, raised primarily uh, in, off, on, on Wolf Road. Okay. Uh, up until the age of five. And after that, my mother, of course, she was schooling in the States. Uh, so I was reared by my grandmother primarily to the, up until the age of five. Um, coming from a troubled background, my mother and my father, you know, oftentimes they didn't see eye to eye. So in it, there was somewhat of a verbal and sometimes physically abusive relationship going on between the two. So my mother, she took us to the States. Uh-huh. And pretty much for the most part, that's that's where I was reared from okay. there. Uh, uh, which exact you know state and city? Awesome. Okay, so Florida primarily. Oh, go you on. know, so started in Miami. Yeah, because right. I get hair in yeah. an accent. Yeah, yeah, so started in Miami, went down to Broward County, which is Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. and oh. eventually we wind up spending the majority of uh, you know my upbringing in Palm Beach County. There was a place called Boynton Beach. Okay, you know, oh. Palm Beach County have several cities in it. Glade, Pahokee, Boca Raton, Delray, Lake, Lake Worth, Lantana. So we landed in Lake Worth for, for a year or two, and then we settled in Boynton. All right. For y'all people who don't know, I mean, most Bamas should be well familiar with South Florida. That's like our backyard. Uh, exactly. So was, I, I heard, I was like, a couple names I know, but I know Boca Raton, of course. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know, so that, that's some familiarity. Um, so, okay, so this was like, Around what era is this? It was like 70s. 70s yeah, like 70s. early 70s? Early 70s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So from there, so how was, I mean, it probably wasn't a dramatic change for you from, you know, being five, you're still like a, I would say an infant, you know, so mm-hmm. just basically, okay, you only know living in the Bahamas for a short period of time versus yes. like, you know, mm-hmm. you growing in this, um, in South Florida in the 70s. So what was that like? You know? Well, to be honest with you, it... Although I was, like you said, infant, five years old, it was still a culture shock. Okay. Okay, because the Bahamas, we had uh, what I call the village mm-hmm. raising kids back then, you know. So whether uh-huh. it was your aunts, your uncles, your mothers, your neighbors, your grandparents, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Now, we were thrust into a brand new culture, a brand new world. And this world, my mother, she didn't even understand, you know, something as simple as the transit system. So just imagine a young kid. First and foremost, we really don't have a place to stay. You know, because, of course, she's, she's leaving a bad situation. Okay. Yeah. All right? And so now here it is. She's trying to figure out this transit situation, uh, the transit system. So we're staying with some in-laws, my father's brother at the time. Okay. Not wanting to impose on them, but nevertheless, this is where we're staying. So she didn't understand the transit, the transit system. So she was literally walking from, like, life Akita out east. Wow. To try wow. to find employment. So, like, 21 miles. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Okay. So, yeah. And so that kind of, it, it took a toll on me, mm-hmm. of course. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted better for us. So while she was looking for employment or working after she found employment, I was actually the man child. I was the caregiver for my younger siblings. So how much, like, children were there all together? So there were three at the time. Okay. Yeah, me being the oldest of my younger siblings. Okay. So... While she was doing this, like, what, like, high school, like, so, basically, after five, like, 
when did you feel like you had to be step up to be your man at the house? So, so after she she got uh, employment, uh, we finally got, you know, got a vehicle first and foremost. Okay. From there, she left. We left my uncle's place, mm-hmm. and that vehicle became our home. Oh. Wow. So we would find ourselves riding around at night in front of uh, uh, parking in front of. Piggly Wiggly's or Winn Dixie or Publix okay. or whatever the, mm-hmm. the, the supermarkets were, and that would once the lights went out and the you know the cops made their rounds, you know we would shut it down. Wake up in the morning and pretty much go into your Burger King, your McDonald's the next morning to freshen up, you know. So it was kind of hard not initially, okay. you know. Oh. And as the oldest of of the of, our, of the three siblings, you know, I was I was kind of confused. You know, my mind's like, damn, where's the dude that's supposed to be here to yeah. be my road, you know, my example, you know, mm-hmm. the, the person that's supposed to teach me certain principles in life. Right. Um, from there, of course, uh, after she, you know, found gainful employment, we were able to get our first apartment. From that first apartment, uh, I was still the caregiver, meaning that I had to stay home with my younger siblings while she went to work. Mm-hmm. So she was really trying to, you know, work in two jobs at the time. And, you know, I would be home. didn't go to school for probably a year or so. Okay. You know, like the average kid did, simply because, of course, we're in a foreign country and we're still trying to find our way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You took that role as a mom. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. So that's a bit. So at five years old, you were, hey, making sure things ran well. That's a lot, man. Like. Because I, I I don't think I start get start um, being left home until my see by myself until like twelve thirteen. Hmm. Wow. So like you know for five I remember what I was doing at five like you know yeah still playing with Power we Rangers st- and stuff like that. Yeah, we just still um, playing to go and run around the playground and stuff like that. I mean not a can where we're not worrying about anything like that. But what you did, you yeah. know, that, that's amazing. You know, at, at an early age, yeah, at the age of five, like. Oh. Yeah, that's great. So from five, so, okay, so how did you, you know, obtain status and start going to school? And what was interacting with um, you being a young behemoth, little boy, what that is, act, interacting with, like, you know, this new U.S. culture, you know, yeah. U.S. students, U.S. teachers, you know, the different neighbors. Like, what neighborhood you started in around that time? Well, we were, I mean, initially, like I said, we started Miami, uh-huh. Fort Lauderdale, then ended up in Delray. Okay. And then from Delray, we went to Lake Worth. Okay. And then Lake Worth, finally, we made it to Boynton. And that's where we became a little settled within those two years, from five to seven years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we're going to school. I went to school by the name of Point Santa Elementary first. Okay. And back in the day, they had a commercial a Bahamas commercial where the little girl came out of the water, but it used to go something like this. It used to be like, ooh, my Bahama, look at there, look at there, right? So the American kids, they, they knew of the commercial, of course. And back then, they figured everyone was either Jamaican or Haitian that yeah, was coming into the country. Yeah. And to be honest yeah. with you, they still believe that sometimes, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh. Until you really sat down with them and let them know, I'm from the Bahamas, mm-hmm. which many of them have finally frequent, you know, leaving their own borders. Yeah. But whenever we, we did go to school, my siblings and I, we would have a crowd of American kids behind us singing that song. <laughs> you know? And they almost sound like Junkanoo Russian, you know what I'm saying? Like, ooh, ma, Bahama. You know, but it made me angry. It wasn't that I was ashamed uh, from, you know, being ashamed from where, where I was from. Mm-hmm. It's just that the teasing, like yeah. anyone, they don't, you don't want anyone jarring you, you know? So I got in a few fights, and then finally, you know, I got some type of respect, 
You know, so I taught them that Bahamians know how to fight too. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey. I may speak a little slow. You know, I may not speak like you speak, but nevertheless, man, I got feelings just like you do. And if you trigger those feelings, I, you know, I don't mind going toe-to-toe with you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but it was always me and my siblings for the most part because it was like us against the world, okay. you know, being thrust into this new culture. Okay, that sounds like you. Because, like, around that period, you know, you had a lot of immigration to the U.S. from the Caribbean. Yes. Um, you know, that's where, that's around the same time, you know, a lot of Haitians, Cubans, and Jamaicans came over around that same time. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. Little Haiti and Little Havana was being developed as communities in the South Florida area. Mm-hmm. And also, around the 70s, that's when, you know, the cocaine cowboys and the whole Pablo yes. Escobar and the co-Colombian thing. Yes. And like, you know, it was like, Best of, the best of times, the worst of times, everything. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, I had an uncle, like, I have family members that um, lived in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my dad's uncle, my grandmother's brother, mm-hmm. like, he he took his whole, well, he left the bombers in, like, the 50s. Wow. And he went and lived in South Florida, and he had a bunch of kids, and, like, you know, yeah. I reconnected with some of them. Probably like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, this one lives in Atlanta and the next one lives in North Carolina. And wow. like, they came down reconnect. And he was telling me about, man, in 79. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, you know, he, right? like, like, you know, like just telling me all the different stories because I asked him, okay, he was in Miami in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and then I always feel like Bahamas try to paint mm-hmm. that, you know, pleasantry picture of yes. that time period. But I'm like, Going back and interesting watching it, and I'm like, yeah, trust me, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. That wasn't so like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all. Y'all probably was in certain neighborhoods and you know, put blinders out to it. But yeah. I'm like, I know the truth. Yeah. So, so take us into you know, okay, you after you graduate elementary and you start becoming a teenager. Mm-hmm. So you know, being a teenager in the United States, uh, let's fast forward to the '80s. Okay. Uh, with, you know the crack cocaine yeah. epidemic that was actually taking place. Um, the hip-hop era. You yeah, know, this is when all this is actually evolving, right? So, Starting around the same time, yeah, 79. exactly, right? So, so uh, Rapper's Delight and, mm-hmm. you know, people like that that just that had just come out, Sugar Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm really thrust into this U.S. culture, so whatever I had in terms of being, uh, you know, uh, characteristics of a Bahamian was actually being transformed into this American culture. Yeah. You know, I was assimilated into it. Mm-hmm. And with that, not only was it the hip-hop era, like I said, but I was actually seeing the guys up the street, mm-hmm. you know, who became my role models. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, not having those figures around, father figure, uncles, or other individuals to point you in the right direction. I'm seeing these brothers up the street making money, driving nice cars, mm-hmm. have the sisters around them. And at the same time, I'm, I'm, I want the same thing. Yeah, I'm feeling that, right? So not to mention the fact that, you know what, the whole while I'm looking at our struggle, you know, from a kid now to, you know, a teenager, preteen, and I'm like, you know, I want better for myself, Mm -hmm. first and foremost, and I also want better for my family. All right. Yeah, so. So basically the streets was calling and, you know, you started, you was like, okay, I got to jump in. Yeah, most definitely. Okay. So. Um, is I always heard, often when I listen to interviews, I always hear this, you know, they say, okay, I had to provide my family. This mm-hmm. was the only option I had, you know, mm-hmm. and 
I was like, because I had an option father figure, mm -hmm. I was I turned to the streets mm -hmm. and turned to the dudes, all the hustlers in the streets mm -hmm. as those father figures. So, um, touch like you know, looking back at hindsight, how important is it for a young man to you to mm -hmm. have that father figure? You know, I think I think it's it's real important when I look at creation and the way God created, you know, humanity. He didn't. He didn't even leave Adam helpless. You know what I'm saying? He made him. He had a helpmate for him. Uh, he didn't. And and he was Adam's advisor. So all through history, wise counsel has been a part of us making wise decisions. In absence of that, we can only look to what we see and make a decision. A, a, a decision based on the limited information that we have before us. You know, like I tell people nowadays, in hindsight, I don't. You know, I take no pleasures in my youthful indiscretion, but nevertheless, I don't hide it neither. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not, a, I'm not that, I'm not so ashamed of it to where I don't put it out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to like me. That's what I tell most people. Where were you when I was in my struggle? I just met you. Yeah. So I'm not one of those persons that get caught up in the swinging pendulum in the public opinion. You yeah. dig what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. most people could never walk a mile in some of these little young kids' shoes, even today here in the Bahamas that live in Montel Heights mm -hmm. or that live in Beantown. No one knows the struggle that that little girl or that little boy go through, whether mm -hmm. it be the molestation or it be the pressure from the gang, from the order, whoever it is, whatever's going on here. Yeah. So it's easy for folks on the outskirts to say something uh, when they're not the ones that's in that predicament. Uh -huh. It's almost like a fan, right? Mm -hmm. why, why, why didn't Kobe take the shot? Why didn't LeBron take the shot? Yeah, but yeah. you're just a fan up in the stand. You don't know yeah. the pressure that was put on him by the opponent. Okay. You know what I mean? So it's easy to say what one should have done. Right. And, you know, that's, it's just life sometimes, you know? Uh, I wish to God I'd made better, better choices, been a better father, uh, probably had gotten married early, made the best decision that most good people do, right? Yeah. But I'm one of them that didn't. But nevertheless, from whatever I experienced, I can pass on to you. And if I can make it today, then you without excuse. That's the way I look at life. That's powerful. Yeah. So from there, okay, so you seeing all this and you being like, okay, I had to make the decision. So what was, what was the first steps to you being like, okay, Really deciding, yo, know, I want to get into the, the hustle again. I want to be like, you know, where you know, drive the nice Rolls Royce. Mm -hmm. You know, come on the sunset and you know yeah. have the fur, the mink fur, mm -hmm. and you just step yeah. up with the alligator shoes. You know, you know, uh, you know. What to answer that question? <laughs> I say it's the same thing that make the average person that have never lived the life I live make mm -hmm. them attracted to something they see. Mm -hmm. Why do you approach that girl that you approach? It's, because it's a learn. It's tantalizing, right? Mm -hmm. It allures you, and that's what that life did. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, you mentioned some of the, the, change, the, the, the change that's in that game. Right. You know, whether it be whatever you see, you know what I mean? So whether it was the car, the girls, or the guy, the swag that the dude had, it was something that, that, that I wanted. You know, not to mention, I, every time I see these dudes, their pockets got the mumps. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So for me, really, it was the money. Right. You know, it, it was the money. And sure, maybe I could have went and got a, a Wendy's job or a Subway job with those, those around now. But, you know, yeah. but at the, at the same time, I was like, well, I don't see people that work those places having no money like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I, need, I was looking for a quick fix. Okay. Wow. So after getting into that, so how did your life how much time did it take for you for your life to change after you start hustling and stuff like so, that? So I started hustling at about 13 years old. Okay. Uh, and from 13 to 19, by the time I was 19 years old, you know, I'd seen my first million dollars. 
Oh, wow. You know wow. what I mean? <laughs> My thing was, I yeah. wasn't, but I, but the thing is, I was learning from some senior hustlers okay. by just observing them because they always said, you know, uh, you got to, you, you know what, you're different than the rest of these dudes. Because whenever you saw me on the street, I was always clean, first and foremost. Okay. I kept my little nice cars, you know, and I stayed to myself. I had a few partners that I was all right with. But me and guys never did well. Always did well with women. You know what I mean? I found women to be a lot more loyal than certain guys. They are? Yeah, you know, so because yeah. I, I would always feel this animosity. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to learn, and then I'm trying to give a little game at the same time, mm. but at the same time, it's a lot of hateration going on, right? Mm. So I would try my best to stay away from that, and that, caught me away from, that kept me away from a lot of conflicts because mm. during this era in the 80s, there were a lot of guys that were on the rise. There were a lot of big-time guys that had gone before me. Mm. I was mm. learning from them. They'll hustle. they get their nice things, of course, uh, move to secluded areas, and then for the most part, some of them would start getting... Hair, beauty hair salons, barbershops, moms yeah. and pop stores. But I always wanted more than that. So at, at the age of 15, 16, what I started doing is whatever I saw in the hood, I started writing. Mm, I started right. writing. And I would go to a studio that a white guy owned in Fort Lauderdale, and it was actually his bathroom because I always had, I always had this thing where I wanted to tell a story. Oh, you want to be a rapper? I want, and, I, and I actually <laughs> became one. I actually became one. So okay. I actually became one, of course. Okay. Right. So, so before, at 16 years old, uh, I would I would go into the studio, pay him his fifty dollars for an hour, and do like three songs in one take. Okay. You know what I mean? Back mm -hmm. then, we had the reel to reel system. So from there, I come back. He'll he'll press it, uh, play it, and put it on a on a tape. And from that tape, I would actually come with my few homies that I had from, from my little hood, and we'll ride around in my car playing that song that I just made about our city mm -hmm. or what I've been seeing in the last, you know, so many weeks or months that I, you know, okay. that I was hustling. Mm -hmm. And after that, I started taking, you know, as I elevated, because I started hustling just a regular street hustler. Mm -hmm. Once I started making a little money, my first five, ten thousand $10,000, I started buying more weight. You know, and mm -hmm. waited. That's you know. So, and from there, I started going up the road to North Carolina. Okay. Where the product that I had, you could get more for. Okay. Mm -hmm. And from there, uh, the, when I made my first thirty thousand dollars, I got with some guys that had been to college, of course, mm -hmm. uh, for uh, production and whatever it was in that field. That I know I didn't have, mm -hmm. you know, the the smarts for, and I somewhat employed them, and I got my first music studio. And so I was the CEO of that company. It was called Sloppy Tight Entertainment. Okay. And uh -huh. I was also the first artist. Okay. And under Sloppy Tight Entertainment, we had uh, a little girl R&B singer. We had a male R&B singer, a female R&B singer, and I had four rappers with me. Okay. And we made our first single, which was Little G. Okay. You know what I mean? With a bonus track on there called All Jokes Aside. Mm -hmm. And nice. I was, before Jay and all these guys broke in those big deals, I was the only person back then that was getting ready to ink a deal with Blockbuster Video. Oh, Where oh, they started oh. to sell my music out of Blockbuster. Out of Blockbuster. Blockbuster. And that was totally unheard of. Yeah. You know, so we yeah, got even it. Even though Blockbuster went down, exactly. I don't think no one ever thought about doing it. Exactly. You know, so, right. yeah. So that's why, you know, shouts out to the brothers and sisters that's doing their thing in the music today. Mm -hmm. But I always had a vision, and music was my thing, and music was also my out, because in the game, what music was, for many of us, and for those who don't know, uh, that was the next level to the dope game. Yeah. So it most was. of the people yeah. that's in the game today, promoters, be promoters or, or dudes right. that's in the music. That's how, you know, we're transitioned from yeah. thug to success for the most part. Yeah. But yeah, because I always wondered, um, 
If I always watch a lot of like gangster related content or like you know some mafioso type movies, and I always mm. be like, what if they actually took the same Italian mindset and put this towards business? Mm-hmm. And that's how I somewhat you know took the way they did things, but apply it to you know a more legitimate yes. way. Like mm-hmm. you know, okay, mm-hmm. I gotta you know take this money and reinvest it in this mm-hmm. and do this back and forth, but. On that note, before we get into deep, we're about to take a quick short break and we're gonna see y'all on the next side of Everything Cool. All right. Hi, this is your favorite Zaddy, Lord Jalen Willard from Everything Cool. And this episode is sponsored by uh, Nobody. If you would like to sponsor an episode of Everything Cool, feel free to email us at the original people network at gmail.com. Or DM us on Instagram at the Original People Network, or on Facebook, the Original People Network. Now back to your scheduled programming. So we're back now. We're back. We're back, and we about to, you know go from where we just left off. So business. Yes. So basically, you was hustling, but then you was taking that money which you had in and you was putting into your business. So how did you go about like, you know, finding artists? Why how you was even doing all this at the same time? Yeah, right. So <laughs> so with in the drug business, I had already established myself. Like okay. I said, I, I we did what's called take the show on the road. So I left I left Florida. Okay. Went up to North Carolina. Uh, and once I got to North Carolina, you know, I found out what the you know, the demand was. Mm-hmm. And so I started establishing shops for the most part. So from South Carolina to North Carolina and even in parts of Maryland, I started establishing shops. Okay. Once, it's like anything, once you establish certain things, it runs on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, especially once you got good people mm-hmm. with you. So the folks in North Carolina were extremely loyal to me uh, because I took care of everyone. I never came in with I'm taking over mindset. Mm-hmm. And that was the downfall of many guys, not only from where I was from, but that's that's the mindset of anyone who goes in there uh, trying to rule with an iron fist as opposed to with tack and diplomacy. Mm-hmm. So I went in respecting the people, and the people in turn showed me love and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I had a few places uh, that was making well over thirty thousand dollars a week. Okay. Mm-hmm. And once they were running on their own, I would pretty much now you know, go to my studio with my producers. At the time, the lady that actually did the bios and photo shoots for Babyface and uh, Jermaine Dupri, mm-hmm. that was the same person that I was frequent when I go to Atlanta. I spent a lot of time in Atlanta during that time. Okay, so this was like late 80s, early 90s? 90s, yeah, 90s, let's say 92, 93 right, that now. Sound, that sounds yeah, like what, Babyface Exactly, yeah, that's it, right? You know, so I'm in Atlanta during that time. Uh, Outcast is on there Come up Yeah You know They had just released Their first piece So Yeah That was was 92 Yeah um, Southern Southern Playlistic Yeah Southern Southern Playlistic At the time Right The whole Dungeon Family Dungeon Family That's right You know uh, Big Boy Grip All of them They were getting ready To do their CeeLo Green At the time So yeah And um, so Again My studio was in Savannah We frequent Atlanta a lot That's where I got My equipment and stuff from Okay. Uh, Rhythm mm-hmm. City back in the days, right off Jimmy Carter. Okay. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we was just trying to do our thing, man. You know, I was I was looking for a way out. Mm. So, like I said, I had already established myself as high as I could go. Okay. As a young teenage boy, 
uh, in that game. I was pretty successful. Uh, and my whole thing now was, okay, where do we go from here? Okay. Or where do I go from here? You know, because I know the horror stories. There's no reigning king. You know, I've learned except Christ. You know what I mean? So yeah, with that uh-huh. being said, you got to find a way to transition from thug to success. Mm-hmm. So for me, I always had a passion for move, uh, for music, for movies, for imagery. Okay. And like I said, I got with the brothers who went to college for it. We formulated Slappy Tight Entertainment. And, you know, whatever you surround yourself with, that's, that's what you not only gravitate to, but that's what gravitate towards you. A buddy of mine by the name of Charles Silk Dunn, he got this quote. He says, whatever you're looking for, looking for you. Uh, yeah. So the artists, uh-huh. you know, that, that I knew from home, mm-hmm. uh, like Jay Red uh, from North Carolina, like uh, Kelly Horns, you know, Slim Trim. I just told these guys to come on board, and they already knew who I was. And they were like, Pone, you doing music? Because they used to call me Al Capone on the street. So they was like, Pone, okay. yeah, Pone, you doing music? So come on board. So I was like, okay, come on. You know what I mean? So, you know, bring us on board. So I brought them on board. We made good music together, um, and we just went from there. That's dope. Yeah. So um, did any of your artists or you see any, like, major label, like, you know, relationships or success? Well, keep in mind, bear in mind that prior to major labels, uh, guys like myself, P really bust through. He he broke the the threshold, right? Mm. Master P, that is. Right? And if you notice, a lot of the artists and producers and companies that came out the South, including Baby Them, you know, these street guys has had that business savvy about themselves. You know, they really went against the label, the way the industry was. And that was my concept. I would literally, although I would be at the time, you know, moving drugs around, I would literally be coming from South Florida and stopping in almost every major city selling boxes of tapes. Okay. You know, oh. so I'm on, I'm on the move like that. And, you know, so we weren't really chasing the major label because the major label, the only reason most people chase it is because they want to check. Yeah. But we understand or I understood the pimp game that came along with the major label. That yeah. is, we front you this. Yeah. And we when you, when you, exactly, yeah. you know what I mean? And oh. when you look at it, you sold a million albums. LL Cool J's, he suffered the same thing, TLC, yeah. and a few other artists that finally came out about it. You know, when you look up, you don't have no money. You haven't made, you, you're dead broke. Yeah. So I wasn't chasing the major label. I was chasing getting out there. Yeah. You know, so whatever I had to do to, to get out there, that's what I was about. So like I said, whenever I was, was moving all the products, I'd be moving my tapes at the same time. Okay. You know? So, um... When did, because um, you were arrested at, mm-hmm. at a point. So you was around probably your early 20s at this time. Yeah, actually 23 when I was arrested. Okay. So, like, how did that happen? And then what were you charged with? And how did that all unravel? From okay, there? good stuff. So I'll never forget um, one of my artists that I mentioned, Trim, Kelly Horn, he had never seen a beach before. He grew up in Asheville, Hendersonville, mm-hmm. uh, middle, uh, Western District of North Carolina, never seen a beach before. And I had always promised him that I'd take him to the beach. So one day, uh, me and Jay Red had already laid our vocals okay. over, over some tracks. And our, my producer called me and he was like, listen, Poem, bring, bring Trim down. I mean, bring, uh, yeah, bring Trim down so he can lay his vocals, the track. Is ready. We threw mixing on this end so he can come on and lay his, his vocals. Okay. I was in North Carolina at the time, so I said, listen, man, let's, uh, let's scoot down to the studio. So he, he and I got into the car. We went to Savannah, Georgia. Of course, he laid his vocals. While they were mixing it down, I was like, yo, you want to let's dash down to Florida? And he was like, man, let's do it. So we jumped in the car. We drove down to Florida. When I got down there, there was an old school guy by the name of Dredd. Okay. Um, 
uh, and I'm gonna put him out there. A guy by the name of Eustace Vanderpool. That was his name, Dread. In 19 in the 80s, he was he was he was just a weed man. And right. we all would just sit around and kick it sometimes. You know, I was real young back then. Okay. <laughs> and when when we came through, I was driving a 5.0 white on white convertible at the time. So when we were coming through, there was a sun shower. Okay. And uh-huh. so I had to uh, pull over just to put the top up. And while I'm putting the top up, I noticed he was just sitting by this place called Esther Hester Park. And he was just sitting on, on a stump. And I looked and I saw him and I was like, Dre, what's up? And he was like, hey, Pong, what's happening? So I told him to come on and get in. You know, it was, a, it was a sun shower, of course. So he got in the car with me, and he started telling me this long story where he had been. He was actually incarcerated. Okay. Oh. You know, and during his incarceration, the vicissitudes that came upon him where he, uh, you know, had lost a kid. And, you know, now he was out trying to go redeem himself to the, the old trap that he used to have. But the youngsters yeah. oh. wasn't hearing that. Yeah. So I gave him some money and gave him an address. And I said, listen, man, I just want to introduce you to a new life. I wasn't bringing him anywhere to work because I was transitioning out. Yeah. I really wasn't spending that type of time. And actually, mm-hmm. I had already made my last purchase, to be right. honest with you. Right. You know, so I was done with the game. So he blew the first set of change that I gave him. And I could remember one day I went up to, to Jersey, spent some time up there by Trump Plaza, and I was on my way back. And while on my way back, I got a call from my kid's mother saying that he had come by the house. So I said, okay, what was it? What did he come by for? So she said, well, he came by because he wanted you to know he blew the money. And on top of that, he wants some more money so that he can come back up there. So I said, listen, we're going to save, get him some change. And tell him I said to come on up there. I'll meet him up there. So by times I got from Jersey, of course, because I made a few pit stops, he was at the location that I'd given him the address to. And he was in there asleep. So I got in about 3, 4 in the morning. When I got in there, there was he was asleep. I peeked in on him took off. The next morning I came, took him on the shopping spree and everything. Mm. Within 30 days, the brother had his own house up there, right? And driving rental cars, doing well for himself. Now, this is a man mm-hmm. that just got out of jail. Yeah. Only thing mm-hmm. I'm trying to do is get back because, mind you, I didn't bring him up there to hustle for me. Mm-hmm. I was on my way out the game. Like I said, I made So you life. was in North Carolina at this time? I was in North Carolina. Okay. That's actually where the, where, where the case took place. So, okay. here it is. Uh, like I said, I'm not frequenting the spots anymore, the traps. Mm. So, him being the person that he 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 is, I can't say was is, he asked one of what they consider my lieutenants. Look, if something was to happen to Pone, do you think me and you could run this spot? And the guy took offense to it. And after that, you know, they were blowing up my page at the time. We had the mm. flip phones back then, but I yeah. wouldn't call back because at this time I was in Atlanta. Okay. Uh-huh. And so on my way up the mountains, up 26, on my way back to North Carolina, I finally called back. And when I called back, they was like, listen, man, we ran him from around here. This is what he said. And when you come, we'll tell you the rest. So finally, I go straight to the, one of the spots, the main spot. And, you know, they told me, listen, this is what he said, man. And we don't know how to take that. Because they really didn't like many guys coming from the South. You know what I mean? Because uh-huh. it was just this attitude about them, like this level of aggression and takeover, mm-hmm. as opposed to attacking diplomacy, like I said, uh-huh. the way I went in it. So, so I said, you know what? It's cool. Don't worry about it. And at the time, like I said, I don't want no drama mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm done. I, yeah. I mean, you know, once you make it, it's like, don't look back. That's what I believe. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, yeah, like Kalito's way. <laughs> yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Keep, keep, it, keep yeah. it pushing, right? Yeah. So, and, and I'd really become so fascinated and in love with the music business and I just, I was like, man, if had I known this soon, I would have never been doing what I, what I was doing. But nevertheless, those were the stepping stones for me. So while he's exp- 
the lieutenant is explaining to me what he said, here he comes walking in the house. You know, and when he came in walking inside the house, it was like um, the guy just kept talking. And while he's sitting there telling me what happened, uh, the guy tell him, man, if you say that again, it's like you just, someone, he says to you, you know, just if you tell Pone that again, I'll hit you in your mouth. Mm. So I'm like, yo, take it easy. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So he kept saying it, not knowing that the brother was oh. armed. Oh. Mm. You know what I mean? So I said, listen, just do me a favor. Don't come around here no more. All right. You know, do me that favor. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it escalated somewhat, and a little violence took place. Let me just say that without going yeah. any further, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from that, though, he had been doing his own thing, mm-hmm. and he had actually already had an encounter with the FBI mm-hmm. where he got knocked off in his own house being greedy, yeah. right? Oh, and so he implemented me mm-hmm. in the conspiracy. I was never caught with drugs or guns ever in my life. Not ever, you know, and I mean, that doesn't excuse me, but what I'm saying, when we look at the law, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, I was pretty much implemented into his situation, and the FBI asked me plainly, listen, you tell us this about this one, that one, and that one, and Mm -hmm. we let you go. And I simply told him, no, I'm not going to tell you that. And it wasn't me trying to be no tough guy, Mm -hmm. you know, because when when the federal government stepped down to you, it's all about you have to be that person behind the wall, Mm-hmm. in the room as well as you are on the street. Yeah. So it was just my moral compass that wouldn't allow me to say something against you yeah. that I really didn't know anything about. Yeah. And even mm-hmm. if I did, then why didn't I tell why me and you was doing it? Yeah. Not now that I'm in trouble. And I think that's the thing that I had with the whole, you know, people telling telling thing. You know, don't yeah. tell when you get jammed up. Tell why yeah. we getting good money together and having fun and got the women and all this other stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. That's That's just my take on life, you know? But... That's understandable. Yeah, you know, so my whole thing was they they considered me the enemy because I literally defied them. And as a young boy uh, back then, you know, I ain't going to say that I wasn't fearful. I mean, because like I say, this they talk about life. You mm-hmm. know, they telling me, listen, man, you, you facing life. And I'm facing life. I'm saying I'm facing life for what, though? Mm-hmm. You know, I ain't get caught with no drugs and no guns. What am I facing life for? Mm-hmm. But because they had already stacked the deck against me in terms of people who, potential yeah. people who would, would have testified. Yeah. They were saying if this one testified that he, you sold him a key, this one testified that you sold him nine ounces, this one testified that you sold him X, Y, Z, they add all that up, ghost yeah. drugs, and then from a conspiracy, they can give you X amount of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was literally facing 57 years to life. Oh. That's, what oh. they, that's what they wanted to give me. And so my thing was, you know, I told them, let's run it. Let's go to trial. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they were like... Well, yeah, we so, we, so 57 uh, years was the plea deal. No, actually, his they wanted to give me a 10 year plea, okay. Mm-hmm. But they wanted they, they tried to trick me into that because let me back up a little bit. Uh-huh. The first indictment was defective mm-hmm. because there were agents that said that they had surveillance and recordings mm-hmm. where they made specific purchases from these locations from me, mm-hmm. and I knew that that wasn't true because at the time I was in, I was in Florida. And I had doctors and other investors that were coming to say, no, he was down here. This is the date that you're saying. It's a one-time situation. So they were like, yeah, it was a one-time situation. But come to find out when the federal indictment came out, they said it was March 15th. Mm-hmm. But the indictment had February 3rd. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Wow. So, And then when we asked for them to, to uh, release the, the footage and the audio that they had, they said it got lost. So the indictment was, in fact, defective, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Absence the audio that you can't find. Mm-hmm. So 
So here it is. I'm like, I'm telling my lawyer, like, listen, man, we could beat this. I met a guy by the name of K-9 who had just come down from, from uh, federal prison. He had beat his case. Mm. And I met him while I was in Max because they were keeping me in Max unit. They were actually deprived me from the phone and everything. Okay. You know, so, and, and K-9 looked at it. And he was the one that actually schooled me in the law. He said, man, this indictment defective. And when I brought it to my attorney's attention, he was real hurried. He was like, listen, just let's, let's just sign this. Because he was holding like $70,000, $80,000 worth of property deed for me so that I can get a bond in the event that the feds gave me a bond, right? Mm -hmm. And whatever else, we'll put the cash with it. Mm -hmm. So he was like, okay, yeah, I see it. Okay, but just sign this right here. Mm -hmm. And me being ignorant at the time, I signed it. And it was a plea. It wasn't uh, bond information. So when we went into court, the judge was like, listen, were you here today to take a plea? I said, no, no, I'm not. And the lawyer's telling me, no, no, just don't worry about it. I got it. And I'm like, no, bro, I'm in here for a bond. So I told the judge, the judge was like, listen, well, this is the, and mind you now, with that plea, mm. it wasn't just 10 years. Okay. It was 10 years and testified. Oh. oh. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, it wasn't like for, for those out there listening, like, well, he should have took it. He, he spent all that time. He's stupid. No. Nah. Uh, I had more rectitude. You do yeah. what you do, and I'm going to do me. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was like, tell on Justin. You know, tell on bro. You know, and it's like, no, nah, I don't know nothing about these people. And they're like, yeah. well, here go the script. You just read, you just do what's on this paper. Just say what, what's on this paper. Mm-hmm. And one thing I learned about the feds is once you sell out to them, you're agent for life. Yeah. So don't let nobody tell you different. You know what I, I mean? Know. I mean, I've watched, like, yeah. consume enough media to know, like, okay, the inner workings. And I heard many countless stories about mm-hmm. how in situations where you know, the federal government will feed you a plea deal. Mm-hmm. Most, 80% to 90% of the time, people take the plea deal. Yeah. And then you end up doing, you know, serving time for crimes you either didn't commit or exactly. it's not told into this amount. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of times, most of the times, the feds have a, almost a 98% conviction rate. Cause, I'll tell you why. Only because people plea. Yeah. Not because they're guilty. Not because they're guilty. Let's just think about this. Mm. If 98% of the people that they have on their conviction rate went to, went to trial, I'm here to tell you every district court, every federal uh, 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 U.S. prosecutor's office in those districts that only mm. allocated a certain amount of money. Mm. So that means you would have to put up something beyond whatever your budget is to try these people. Yeah. They don't have mm. enough human resources to do that, first and foremost. Mm. Even though they're the feds. Trust me when I tell you that. Do you know who really teach the feds? Guys that get busted. Tell me this. You do the work for them. So it's reverse. And I know it's like, but that's the government. No, they people. They people with limited resources. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? So guys that get knocked off actually teach. They the ones that taught where the compartment's at. Mm. Stash spots Mm. and all these other things. They the ones that told people about, told them about the route. Mm. You know, Mm. and the thing about it is while you say, that this is what happened, you bring in 20 people for them. And 20 people who haven't been jammed up in nothing, they, they're fearful. So what are they going to do? They're going to take a plea. That's what they're going to do. Yeah. You know? So, okay, so what ended up happening, you know, after um, your lawyer, you and your lawyer disagreed and then your sentencing? So the judge was like, yo, this is the best plea bargain mm-hmm. for, for you. I don't normally give this low of a plea bargain. Uh, so I was, and I, this is what I said. This is on record. I said, "Well, Yon, if it's such a good plea bargain, you take five and do it, and Mr. Devereaux, you take the other five and you do it. I'm going to trial." And the prosecutor, she went crazy in the, in the courtroom. 
so much so to where the court, the judge had to be like, you know, order in the court, order in the court. You know, and she was like, Jan, if he doesn't take the plea, the plea bargain, we're going to uh, indict him on conspiracy and drug charges. Mm. So what they did was exactly what she said. They dismissed the first indictment, which was defective, mm-hmm. and they indicted me for conspiracy okay. and guns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and there I was. So I told him, you know what, I'm, I'm too deep in it. Let's do it. Okay. So what... Eventually it happened, okay, so you was convicted for uh, conspiracy and, of selling drugs and owning illegal firearms, and then what was that sentence and that was? So, yeah, so, so there was, of course, I was uh, indicted under the new conspiracy, under conspiracy, the new indictment, what they call a superseding indictment. Okay. But mm-hmm. here's the thing, they didn't have no one to indict me with. Mm. So what they did was they, my lawyer was supposed to go see you. Mm. to interview you because you were saying that, listen, man, just tell the lawyer, come see me, and what I'm going to do, I'll be a star witness for you. Mm. Upon whatever we got to do to get you out of it, I'll say that I'm the one that did whatever they're saying that you did allegedly, right? Mm. And that's, that is from the first indictment, mm. which they lost the footage for. Okay. Mm. The lawyer now, me and him already fell out. He knew this information. The U.S. Attorney's Office didn't know it. So what he did was he literally took that information to the U.S. Attorney's Office and they indicted you and me together on that conspiracy. Okay. You know, neither one of us ever had drugs or guns. So what we did, we, 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 we did it together. And because he had had prior charges, he was facing 30 years of life. That's the guy they said was my lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And they came to me at trial because here's the crazy part about it. I was in a predominantly black community uh, in Asheville where I would have had more of Jews, Jews of my peers and race, mm-hmm. right, to pick from from what they call the void there or the, the jury pool. They kidnapped us in the middle of the night and took us into a place called Cherokee County, Bryson City, which is up in like, I don't know, some hillbilly town. And everyone in that courthouse was white with the exception of me and my co-defendant, my daughter's, my kids, my daughter's mother and his brother, who was like my support team in one of my accounts. You know, and they, the lawyers were straightforward. This is another lawyer now. And he came to me and he said, listen, they don't have anything on, on Donald. And they really don't have anything on you. But they're not, they're not trying to let you go. Even my, uh, my international attorney who had came up from Miami said this because they shut the courthouse down on him and told him they're not going to let him represent me. Mm. You know, and, you know, the lawyer at the time of the trial said, listen, man, um, they're not trying to let you go. What if we paint you as the bad guy to let Duck get out of the situation? You know, and I said, whatever you got to do for us to be the conspiracy, you do so. Because trials are primarily about character assassination. Yeah. More mm-hmm. so than facts, unless you have an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. even, you know, I don't agree with it, but even in murder cases, unless a person has, has, is, has, has an eyewitness account, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for that person to still be prosecuted. It will get overturned somewhere in the future. But there I was, you know, at this time, 24, and I'm sitting in there because I had already been in jail now. Uh, a year and some change. Mm. And I was like, you know, whatever you got to do to get Justin out of this situation, if I can use you as an example. I said, man, just do so. You know, I said, man, let's just, let's run it. It's mm. obvious that the deck, is, the, the deck is stacked against me. I'm fighting some powers and principalities that's much bigger than me. Mm. And I'm not going to bow down to it. Mm. You know, and there I was. And so we, after we went to trial, of course, they found us guilty. They dismissed one of the counts because... It was just too stretched. All of them were, but the, the prosecutor in the middle of the trial, because the judge wanted to dismiss both gun counts, because they were like, 
none of them fit into what they consider 18 U.S.C. 924C, which is carrying a drug, I mean, carrying a, a firearm during the commission of a drug offense. Mm. Because people were coming and saying, well, yeah, when I went to buy drugs from him, uh, yeah, he would have a, a Uzi on him mm. or he'd have a gun on him. You know, and 924Cs, just in a nutshell, just simply meant that during the that you have a firearm on you during the commission of a drug offense. So they can charge you not only with the drug crime, but also with the firearm, too, and even in absence of it. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, you know, yeah, so uh, back up a little bit. So the prosecutor was saying, Your Honor, um, you can't dismiss both gun counts because if he had dismissed both gun counts, he had to dismiss the conspiracy. And the only other charge was aiding and abetting. There were four charges, conspiracy, aiding and abetting, and two 924C1 counts. So they were like, you know what, Jan, if you dismiss this other 924C, the conspiracy go out the window because when you instructed the jury, you, construct, you, you instructed the jury on the connectivity mm-hmm. of the 924C and the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So the judge ruled in favor of the prosecutor because, again, it would have been futile for them to even have me in the courtroom because of nine, that 924C, aiding and abetting, I mean, aiding and abetting only carried a limited amount of time okay. in comparison to what they wanted to give me, the 57 years to life. Okay, so you basically, so you were sentenced to 57 years to life. So, no, so after the first gun count was dismissed, which would have given me the first 10 years and everything after that, I think it would have been like 20, 25 years mm-hmm. for every successive gun count that comes along with it because they, mm-hmm. they're, they're consecutive sentences. So what would have happened had I not gotten that one count dismissed, I would have had 57 years. First one gave me either five, and then the other one gave me 10 or 15 or 20 years, depending at the time, right? So when that first gun count was dismissed, I was only left to get the five from the other count. I was actually sentenced to 32 years in federal prison. 32 years. Yeah. Wow. And on that, we're about to take a short break. We're about to get into Mr. Ramsey's time, incarcerated, his different transformations, and how... He found God ultimately. Be right back. Hi, this is your favorite zaddy, Lord Jalen Willard from Everything Cool. And this episode is sponsored by uh, Nobody. If you would like to sponsor an episode of Everything Cool, feel free to email us at theoriginalpeoplenetwork at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at theoriginalpeoplenetwork or on Facebook the original people network now back to your scheduled programming so we're back 32 years man listen (laughs) i always say i because i have some friends who've done like you know lifetime and they've told me being you know in prison i'm like i can't i ain't gonna make it yeah i ain't gonna go there i ain't gonna make it it's it's my (laughs) prayer that no one goes there i'm here to tell you all right trust me i ain't gonna make it i don't i don't see it i ain't gonna make it i saw that um central vibe documentary and saw it like but they had to i'm not gonna make it yes i ain't gonna make it yeah i I got you i respect listen i respect that (laughs) like i know i'm like that's somewhere no so how did you feel when they handed you that sentence because some people say it's almost like it's an out-of-body experience yeah, so good question, right? So to be honest with you, once I realized I was up against something that was like just out of this world, to be honest with you, because the system itself is demonic. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, because any system that go against the law or breaks the law mm. to incarcerate, you become a, a to me, you, you're worse than a criminal. Mm. You get what I'm saying? So for me, I had already become numb. 
Mm. I didn't I didn't mention it earlier, but immediately upon my arrest, uh, my nephew died, my brother's right. only son. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody, I'm not going to say everybody, but, you know, nobody's built to be there with you during the situation. But for yeah. the most part, folks who say that they were, would be there, you know, people went on with their life. And I respect that. I respect everyone who, who did them. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So for me, I was already a, a strong-willed person. I was already cold because, mind you, we started the story out talking about being a man-child. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I wasn't someone who was, you can't break me easily. You know what I'm saying? So I was already cold about the situation. Mm -hmm. And I had been indicted and in jail before for a while before I even allowed my siblings or my parents to know. Because I would literally leave for months at a time and no mm -hmm. one would know where I was. Mm -hmm. So so there I was though. I mean, I was like I said, I was already numb mm -hmm. for the most part. And I wasn't looking for no justice from these people. At the time after my nephew's death, I started getting into the Bible, you know, just reading some Psalms. I mean, that's what we raised up on, right? So yeah. you revert back to whatever your foundation is. Mm. But, you know, I really wasn't looking for God. I was looking for a savior. If mm. I could be honest, you know, I needed somebody to help me with this situation. Yeah. You know, so I was pretty much reaching out to God like, listen, man, I need some help. Get me up out of this situation, man, for the most part. But, for the, you know, to answer your question, I had become pretty numb. I was always cold. You know, not in a bad way, but it for me, that 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 mindset was just uh, survival gear. You know, so here here I was fighting a different folk. It was in the streets, you know what I mean. But nevertheless, I needed to use whatever I could to get through. So I became numb. So when he handed down the sentence, and the way they do it, they literally trick you, right? I ain't gonna say they trick you, but this is the way they do it. So they hand you the sentence down in months. As opposed to years. Yeah. Because everyone so can grasp years, months. right? So if they say 57 years, everyone, oh, Lord, this I got 57 years. But they, they like, no, you got 380-something uh, months. Yeah. And the average dude, to be honest with you, that's out there hustling, he's not even thinking months. Because I, I could recall one joke where a guy, uh, when he got sentenced, mm -hmm. right, he was like, baby, I'll be home in a minute. They only gave me uh, 200, 240 months. And she's looking at him like, are you stupid? That's 20 years. <laughs> That's 20 years, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. 120 months, but that's 10 years. She went to count, and then he was counting, and they say he fainted before he got back to the drunk tank, the holding tank, right? Oh. So for the average person, it doesn't even set in on you until you get back into the, mm -hmm. into the jail or wherever you're being housed. Yeah. So for me, it was like 300 and sub months, and my mindset just automatically switched to whatever you give me, I got to give back. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't even thinking about the time. I always say this. This is the way I live my life. Mm. I focus on the end. Mm -hmm. Right. I enjoy life when I can enjoy it. I enjoy the journey. But when I'm focused on a mission, I focus on the goal mm. because there's too much room in between for the enemy to play with your mind, uh -huh. how it's going to be done. And that's how I live my life. Mm. That's how I coach people to live their life. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's too much, too many details, too many what ifs. Mm. So my whole thing was if you whatever you gave me is 300 and some months. OK, my goal is to get it down to zero. That's my business. You handle yours, I, I got to handle mine. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that was the mindset that I actually went into federal prison with. Okay. Because they said, I always often hear it's like, it comes to realization when those, you know, that cage slides close and then you're in the cage and it's like, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and I'm going to be honest, maybe for most, mm. right? And I, and I have to keep saying this, maybe for most people, it does for 90 plus percent of, of, of people. But those are people who, Realized that I could have made a better choice. Mm. I could have did this. My mom and my dad was there. I was just trying to be a bad boy. Mm. For me, you know, I'm thrust in that world. Mm. I'm out there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, 
good little Bahamian boy off Wolf Road, thrust into U.S. culture, thrust into hip-hop, thrust into everything. So I'm literally being thrust, 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 thrust. Mm. So for me, like I say, you know, I understood what I was up against. Maybe not, I didn't, the full extent in terms of life, no, I didn't know that. But nevertheless, I knew that if I'm out here in this life, two things could happen to me. Mm. One, I could get chopped down and go to early grave. Two, I could go to jail. You know what I mean? I missed the grave, but nevertheless, dang, I'm in jail. Mm. So now I'm still breathing, so let me see how do I make it up out of it. But oftentimes, when you're in that cell, the longer you sit, I can't say this, mm. the longer I sat, the more I was like, man, what ifs? Mm. You know, what if my old man would have been there for me? Mm. And what if I went out here in the streets? What if this? What if that? But it's too many what ifs. Yeah, you know what so. I'm saying? Coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, they say if, if was a fifth, then we'll all be drunk. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's too many what ifs. And I, I, you dig what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm telling you because let me tell yeah. you what happened to most dudes, right? When uh, they're in there, condemnation, even for people that's incarcerated in their mind, because there's many individuals yeah. out here that swear they made the best choices, got all the degrees, yeah. got more degrees than the thermometer, but nevertheless, they still incarcerated in their mind. And they would, what ifs? What if I had married the right man? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I don't deal with that too much because I realize that if you sit there and self-condemn, Man, you're going to die. You're going to yeah. die. Your situation, I mean, there's no way you can come up out of it because you've beaten yourself down so bad, you don't have no fight in you. Yeah, take the heart and life yeah. and soul out of you. You, you know, like, you know, even from yeah. my experience, this is like, you know, even, you know, you get in points in your life where you always be like, okay, I wish this had been different and this had been different. But I feel like when I stop saying whatever and just dealt with the hand that I was given. Yes. Like, you know, I maximized my time and, you know, go yes. way, way further. They're always thinking, I should have done this or I should have done exactly. it all. Why I couldn't be a why me? Exactly. Like, you know, so, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, with that time, so how much years you end up serving and how did you get finally get released? Did you serve the whole 30 years? No, so actually so, I served on a 30, 32 year sentence. I served uh, 21. Okay. Uh, but I have to back up a little bit and give you my transition. Okay. Right? So my transition, enter into federal prison. The first thing I did was uh, two things. One, the Bible became my first best friend. Dictionary okay. the second. And federal law, which I studied for over 18 plus years, that those were my, my outlets. Mm. So while everyone was still talking about the girls and the parties and the money, mm. I was literally trying to find the conduits so that I can get back out to this free world. Did so you do any extensive reading of any other books as well? Of course. I mean, you know, of course, 48 Laws of Power, mm. you know, uh, so many books, psychology books, mm. uh, who, sh who switched off my brain, you know, and just a litany of different, different materials, you know. And I also surround myself with individuals who were just aspiring to have more. Mm. What I never did was people who were like me, I never pretty much associated myself with them to the extent to where we hung out. Mm -hmm. Now, we may work out, but we ain't going to hang out. Mm -hmm. So I would hang out with guys who, uh, who were in there for fraud, mm -hmm. uh, other individuals who just had different types of crimes than I did. Because you'll find out that in those, in those circles, those individuals will educate themselves on different planes, mm -hmm. different levels. You know, I watched the news a lot, Wall Street journals, you know, whatever it was, I, I continue to feed myself. You know, I, I pretty much self-taught for the most part. I, I did a little, little college in there, but at the same time, since I was under alias, I never got the degree, you mm -hmm. know. So I did a lot of, you know, various studies, 
And my whole thing was to learn a little bit about everything. Because I said this, I said, while I was in trial, they literally spoke over my little ghetto head. And I yeah. vowed that, that there'll never be another man under the sun that will be able to speak over my head. Because yeah. if, you, if, if, if it was created down here, or if it's in Webster Dictionary, I may not know it verbatim like you would, but I know on or about. So we can sit at the same table and have this discussion. You yeah. know what I mean? You'll never speak over my head. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many degrees you got, what school you went to. Mm. You know, so mm. I, I started to merge both worlds. That is that street world mm. with with that education, you know, because I believe that education for the most part is all about jargon, you know, and understanding mm. principles. Mm. But even for a college kid that goes there, you get on that job what that professor taught you. You're going to have to try to make that work mm. because it ain't the same thing that's that's going on in the classroom. Yeah. You know, so but there I was inside uh, thrust into this prison situation. And, you know, just started going through through my transition, like I said, Bible, dictionary, law. And I realized, man, that not even, you know, every case that I found, there was always, there was a loophole, but there was also 10 doors that were shut on it, mm-hmm. where the only person that got out was the person that used that case or who, who, who filed that case. So I came to myself, and I'll never forget, man, love was, was something that I had always been challenged with, not having that father figure there, mm-hmm. being that man child. And I just came to the end of myself. You know what I mean? I realized that, you know what, man, I don't only need someone to save me out of the situation. I need a Lord. Mm. And I bowed down and I allowed God to extend his arm to me and his love to me. So I wasn't just reading religiously. I needed a relationship. Mm. And from that relationship, God started to reveal himself to me more, uh, teach me certain principles that, that I still use to this day. And I would receive scripture downloads in my spirit. And from that, uh, believe it or not, that's how these doors literally opened for me. Because he gave me a promise. He said, I'll place you in your own land. Then you should know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. So under the Obama administration, they came in and they literally went all the way back to 1986 when the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was implemented. And they found, him and Eric Holder found out that a lot of the cases, the crack cocaine cases from 86 were... They were they were biased. The guys were biasedly convicted, you know, that there were racial statements that were made. And the sentences, of course, were draconian sentences that they were handing out primarily to African-Americans. Yeah, because the whole they had, I think the FBI agent recently came out to say the whole war on drugs was, you know, racially motivated. It, it was racially. And Reaganomics and all this. It was. There you go. Reaganomics. I'll tell you something for you and your readers to look at. There's a. Let me see, there's a, what's the name of the book, man? Uh, gosh, I can't remember the book, but the name is, is Gary Webb, all right? So yeah. the, he's the author, and he was a journalist out of, out of Orange County, California. They killed him in the end. Mm-hmm. But he exposed Reaganomics, the war on drugs, the Nicaraguas scandal, the whole nine yards. And the same yeah. thing that Freeway Rick was jammed up yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, with yeah, Ricky coming out with his stuff right now, too, as yeah. a matter of fact. Yeah. You know, Freeway Rick getting ready to do his thing, same thing we're doing right now. And I think is he got a movie or something coming up soon, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Before, um, what's his name? Uh, John Singleton, like Snowfall is basically based on... Yeah, because like, Rick had an issue with that. He was yeah, wondering if yeah. that was his story. Because no, he know it's his yeah, story. because I mean, there's only one person. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, it ain't too many dudes that been in the game that got 
you know, a, a, a bad deal like Rick did. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I hope John them give Rick his, his props on that because Rick does have an issue with that. I mean, I don't think they resolved it, and John Singleton recently passed away. Wow. So, so yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a bad hand. I, I believe, yeah, I'm yeah. one that don't, that believe, listen, don't, you know, don't try to eat off another man's store. You know what I'm saying? Because it costs yeah. him too much. Yeah. You know, I, so. So, so, um, with your transformation, you finding God, mm-hmm. and with the Obama, with the Obama administration, was you um, did it finish that? Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So with the Obama administration, I uh, there's something called a 3582 motion, mm-hmm. right? And it's for reduction of sentence. Okay. So I filed once they once they modified the ratio, the drug ratio, because it was hundred to one. So what that's one hundred to one ratio simply means is that a white person could get caught with cocaine, uh, key of cocaine, and a black person can get caught with um, uh, one ounce of crack cocaine, and that pers- that black person would be sentenced to 100 times the amount, a sentenced 100 times the amount that a, a white, his white counterpart for the whole kilo of cocaine was sentenced to. You know, so the Obama administration came out, and they, they modified the ratio, and with the first modification, I received relief. I was, I was like the first person out of 2,000 plus guys in USP Atlanta, that's where I was initially, mm-hmm. USP Atlanta, to receive relief. You know, and then after that, uh, a few years before Obama left office, they did it again. And they modified the ratio again, of course, and, wow. and I received additional release. I was actually not scheduled to, to be released from federal prison until 2027, 2029. Wow. Yeah, so I've literally been home now two and a half, going on three years. September will be three years for me, and I've just been enjoying life, traveling the world for the most part, and enjoying it. So that all the prior records got expunged of your record, and what made you, after your release, make you move back to the Bahamas? Well, no, not so much expunged. Okay. I just received reductions. A lot of those criminal charges are still pending. Uh, an expungement, although... You know, you receive an expungement, which simply means to wipe it away. It's not, it's not really wiped away, mm-hmm. you know. And to answer your question, like, what brought me back? I actually came back because although I had, I, I, was, never a, um, I was never naturalized mm-hmm. in the United States. However, I received the green card, resident alien card, prior to uh, 19, I mean, prior to the 9-11 thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we were supposed to have what's called indefinite uh, resident alien cards, meaning that there should be nothing that will like wipe that out or cause you to ever be deported. Mm-hmm. Okay, so immediately once you know I got that last reduction, um, I had saved the officer's life in the process mm-hmm. prior to getting the reduction. Right, so they were actually putting in for me to receive a commutation of sentence again, mm-hmm. and when that was put in, they were also putting in for me to receive one year halfway house, which was at the time unheard of. Yeah. Okay, so they, were, they wanted to reward me for, for what I had done while in prison. So they had put in for it. And mind you now, 96 is when I was indicted, mm-hmm. right, prior to 9-11. Mm-hmm. After 9-11, they created Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. So that mean my name wasn't in anyone's database, in Homeland Security's database. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So once you put me in, though, for the halfway house... Yeah. They have to share that information with Homeland Security, every uh-huh. government entity. When they did that, they say, hey, is this dude such and such? I think immigration need to see him before he leave. And from, their, from federal uh, prison, 
I was released into immigration custody. They came and got me the day of my release mm. instead of me going to the halfway house. And mm. I went into immigration custody, and of course I started to fight it. And they were like, well, well, we'll fight for the next two and a half, three years. And I was like, yo, the hell with this. You know, I'll go back to the Bahamas, and then I'll fight from a, a position of strength mm. as opposed to being incarcerated for another two, three years mm. And, mm. and trying to, you know, prove whatever it was I needed to prove in order to stay in America. Mm. You know, mm. but again, it goes back to the scripture when I told you earlier I got that scripture and I literally started quoting that scripture out of my mouth like a song that says, I'll place my spirit in you and you shall live and I'll place you in your own land and you should know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. It's out of Ezekiel, you know what I'm saying? Because he was literally telling me from that scripture, you coming up out of here, you won't get out 10 years from now. You'll be getting out soon. Mm -hmm. And like I said, utilizing the Obama administration the investigation that they did, that was the conduit that allowed me to be free again. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> so, after being, were, were you taking trips back to the Bahamas while, before you got incarcerated? Not really. I, I'll tell you something. As a young kid, I, I, you know, growing up on Wolfer, I used to sell bags for my grandmother. And, mm -hmm. you know, going downtown, I used to see everyone else enjoying the amenities of this country. Mm -hmm. YH, Chinese. And I used to always say in my mind, my, 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 my mind, my limited thinking that is, God, you must don't like Bahamians. You placed them here, but seem like everybody else enjoy the country more than them. Yep. So my thing was, I'm not coming back here until, you know, I can live like them. Mm. You know, so the music for me was like, that would have that done it. That would have been my plateau. Like, after I make it big, then okay, I came back. Yeah, I'm a Bahamian, but I, I just happen to be a millionaire or whatever. That's a Bahamian. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't dub me as the regular Bahamian. And I'm not knocking it, but when I look at certain mindsets and you know, the way government rock and treat the people, it seemed like the poor man always getting the, the dirty end of the stick. So I wasn't coming back from all that I was exposed to and I had learned just to come, come back to do what? Mm. Be a slave? No, I wasn't, mm. that wasn't my mindset. Mm. You know, so no, I wasn't making regular trips back. I, I saw no need to okay. for the most part. So basically when you got released from jail after almost 40 years, that was three years ago was your first time back. First time coming back, yes. Okay, so... Let's dig into that. Mm -hmm. So, because what you, what you, you were, how you felt back then mm -hmm. about, you know, going to America and looking back and saying why everybody else experiencing the blissfulness of the Bahamas except mm -hmm. Bahamas. That's how I felt and still continue to feel whether it was three years ago or right now. Wow, we like, share the same thing. It's awesome. Good stuff. Because like, we, we, we always talk about that. Like, yeah. you know, I always, because... The course of work I do, I get to see others enjoy this. Exactly. And, you know, come back to, you know, regular Bahamian life and you don't see it in it. That's how every young Bahamian, especially in my generation, felt. And that's why all of us were so eager to leave here to go to the U.S. To yes. go get that American dream. Yes. To either stay there mm -hmm. or be empowered there and come back here and rule mm -hmm. and dominate. But exactly. obviously because, like you said, I didn't even know Homeland Security was that young. I yeah. thought this was something that been around because, like, when you get a, when we got our OPT card, it says mm -hmm. you must report to Homeland Security to get approval to work. Da 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 da. Yes. So, for a lot of us who went to the U.S., you know, over the last five to seven years, a lot of us was forced to come back home mm -hmm. because, you know, if you wasn't working a STEM type program, mm -hmm. they wasn't granting you a work a work permit, or if you didn't like, you have to have some highly 
you know, specialized certifications for you to be granted a green card mm-hmm. or, you know, a work visa. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of us, you know, being disappointed, we couldn't live this grandiose life mm-hmm. in the U.S. Came back home, and I feel like for the most part, that's what created this new surge of entrepreneurs. I, I agree. Because if you look at every business that been that has, you know, been created within the last five years, it's mm-hmm. from those same set of people that, you know, wow. had to come back from yes. the U.S. and mm-hmm. taking, okay, you don't know they're going to mash you up here mm-hmm. or whatever. You can't go back over there, so you yes. got to make something. Exactly. Whatever. That's and right. And you've seen, you've seen, okay, you see we in this, you know, remote location. We mm-hmm. see how these people live who either, you know, high executive positions in this remote location mm-hmm. and their visitors and different people who live on the all the way on the western side of the island, or yes. all the way on the eastern side, or on these little keys. We see how they they live in this lake, but they ain't from here. Why wow. yeah. they living like mm-hmm. kings and queens, and we living like you know paupers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with that, so what, what what was your mindset when you came back and you saw? Did you feel like things changed, or you feel like things was the same, or did it get any better? To be honest with you, um, once I started like listening to you know, some of the rhetoric of the politicians and, you know, the gripe of the people, you know, I, I realized that things had actually gotten worse. Mm. You know, it had gotten worse. Uh, you know, I was here during the time of the Penland administration. Mm. And one thing I can say about Penland is that he at least had a vision for this country. Yeah. You know, um, did he do everything right? I don't think any person does everything right. You know, I think they wow. seek to you know, do things right, but nevertheless, we all drop the ball somewhere, right? But just from my brief study, you know, for the last so many years uh, with with ad- previous administrations, it's like they've been selling the people out and the country out, you dig? So it's like, mm. dang, I don't mind you putting your hand in the cookie jar, yeah. but at least feed your people, yeah. you know? And I, I mean, because that's always going to happen. It doesn't make a difference who it is, you know? And mm. so... My thing was, you know, I'm looking at the plight with the youth and young adults in the street. I'm listening to the people, you know, in the urban communities. I'm listening to the people, the hotel workers, government workers. And every complaint is the same. And to be honest with you, I was saddened by that. I even said one day, hell, you know, once I start doing what I'm doing, I might even put a bid in the run. You know what I mean? Because they've already tried this one and that one. All the great orators, because they, they, they... Great speakers. That's yeah. how I look at it. They're great speakers. But Satan was a good speaker. He tricked yeah. Eve with that. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you should feel the brunt of what's really going on now. Anytime the expats that you're talking about or the foreigners can come in and enjoy the amenities of your country more than you, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a major problem. Anytime guys like yourselves can go off to school, Right. Mm-hmm. And come back and they say, well, you overqualify when they promised you all your life while going to school, you know, get a good education so you can come back and get a good job. Right. And you come back and you can't get that job or you do have that job, but you can't get that right rightful position because some foreigner is lording over you. To me, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, wow. I say this and I let you in on this note. Mm-hmm. I say this country should have at least 500 surprises. Not necessarily what he do. That's that's his business. But I'm talking about. Black, Bahamian, wealthy entrepreneurs. Why not? You went to school, you work hard for it. You know what I'm saying? God placed you in the Bahamas. That means that he knew what he wanted Bahamians to be, right? So why shouldn't that Bahamian be successful? Why shouldn't you be someone that invests in Bahama? 
Why shouldn't you guys pool your money together? You know what I'm saying? To have something like this or the next great whatever. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my perspective on life. And I thank God for my upbringing in the States, my exposure that is, mm. because my mindset couldn't be nothing less than that. I couldn't live here. I'd rather live in another country and be a man's slave, not in my own country. Mm. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's what makes us, me and Buford, because Buford, um, he went to school in Canada mm-hmm. or whatever. So, like, you know, being also exposed to that first world country, but like... Yeah. Like, the places which you talk about, like, you know, I went to school in Atlanta. I've yeah. been there. I didn't see, like, I heard the different <laughs> stories. I didn't know who did this and did that. So I'm sort of acclimated with the highest of life and the yes. lowest of life. So, you know, my mentality, because I've seen, like, certain things, is like, life is bigger. Life is grand. It is. And, you know, yeah. we can make it higher and take it to, like, you know, pursue our higher purpose. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's why I like the title of your book. When you know, check your past, but garbage. It ain't really about what we do in the past, but it's That's like right. how high we take it and how far that we take it. But you know, connecting to the higher power. Exactly. We we, we get higher. Exactly. You know? That's like, right, so, man. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you so much, Mr. Yes. Ramsey, for joining us. I thinking we need to bring him back on again because it's some awesome. Definitely. Because because it's it's another. I, we already know this part long enough. <laughs> and as I already was like, yo, we could do a next whole part get this long. Yes. I hope we can continue this conversation. But thank you for joining us on Everything Cool. Um, awesome. When does your book um, come out? Well, we're, we're trying to finalize it here. Uh, preferably, preferably it will be this year. Okay. Let me say that. You know, so it's just been a lot of back and forth, and I just need to be a little more intentional. Sometimes when you have many projects going on, you can kind of spread yourself kind of thin. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I'm going to get a little more intentional about it so that we can actually have that book out there because I got, like, you know, the podcast with you guys, other interviews going on and mm. getting ready to hit the schools and just working with nation building, working with our youth and young adults. So okay. I need to have that material already ready so once I touch down, uh, you know, the viewers will be able to, to get right. it and really get yeah. some in-depth, a little more in-depth information than what we're, what we're sharing now. Okay. So, so do you have any, like, handles where the people can follow you at? Well, again, I'm putting a few things together, uh, but Ramsey Global should be up real soon. Uh, you can like me on Facebook, uh, Ramon Ramsey, uh, and or contact me. You know, just just give me a call. You know, my number is eight one eight six five four eight. You know, I'm life coaching right now, so okay. whatever it is that's needed, I'm just trying to contribute back to the places that I may have been uh, instrumental in destroying. Okay. You know, that's our youth and our young adults that's building people up, you know, with inspiration or whatever I can do to contribute to someone's life. Because God did it for me. I'm just trying to, you know, pay it forward. All right. Mm. So that's a wrap. That's a wrap. This is another episode of Everything, Everything cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, see? see me down, put my soul in the fire. But we keep going. So high, we keep going high.